today's passage, we'll be reading 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. Uh, This is page 1846 in the Brown Pew Bible. Page 1846. If you brought your own Bible, it's a page. I don't know what it is. First Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This ends the reading of God's word. As We continue on our series dealing with the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, We finally come to the sola dealing with uh, Jesus Christ uh, directly. Uh, This is solus Christus, there it's the third one, uh, or in Christ alone. Last week, uh, Bill did an excellent job uh, uh, unpacking what it means um, that Christ is unique, Um, that Christ is the one and only way to the Father, that he is God incarnate, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the good shepherd, the vine. The doctrine of the matchlessness of Christ is an absolute foundational doctrine uh, to everything that is called Christian theology. And Bill did a fantastic job for it. However, by the time we reach the Reformation, the disagreement between Rome and the Reformers would not have been over the person of Jesus Christ. Rome would have largely or entirely agreed with the Trinity, uh, with the dual natures of Christ as both holy God and holy man. Rome would have agreed that he was uh, God incarnate, uh, that he was the second person of the Trinity. They would have agreed with the uniqueness of the person of Christ. So the question that the reformers and Rome were disagreeing on is not who is Jesus. The question that they were disagreeing on and that the reformers were protesting was what has Christ done and what did it accomplish? The question isn't necessarily about the person of Jesus, but about the work of Jesus. That's where the conflict at the time of the Reformation was. However, by the time you've reached there, again, Bill's uh, teaching on uh, the uniqueness of Christ is absolutely foundational. Up to the time of the Reformers, Rome had incrementally moved away from the sufficiency of the cross. They had, over uh, a certain amount of time, developed views and rituals that, in effect, helped to complete the work of Christ, to augment it, to offset it. It was no longer Christ alone. It was Christ plus something. Uh, It was Christ plus the priest, Christ plus penance, Christ plus your indulgences, Christ plus 
uh, purgatory, Christ plus Mary. Rome had developed an entire sacramental theology that placed a mediator between the one mediator between God and man and the church. They would have read Paul's words that we just read about Christ being the only mediator between God and man and, and they would have said yes. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. But once that gets, that needs to get applied, it needs to get applied to the believer through the magisterium, through the official ministry of the church. It needed to get uh, filtered and applied through the popes and the bishops and the priests. It needed to have the grace applied through baptism and in confession and in penance. It needed to be consumed at the mass. It needed to be bestowed by the Virgin Mary. It was Christ plus. We can see this in some of the titles that Rome had given to Mary and to the priest. Mary, for those of you who aren't uh, too familiar with, uh, with Roman theology, Mary is often called a co-redeemer with Christ. Now, they don't think that Mary was on the cross accomplishing redemption. Right? That's, not, that's not what they mean by co-redeemer, but she is a co-redeemer in applying it to the believer. She is called a mediatrix. She is another mediator with Christ to, to, to hash out and to dispense saving grace. Pope John Paul II said, quote, the universal motherhood of Mary, the woman at the wedding of Cana and of Calvary, recalls Eve, mother of all the living. However, while the latter helped to bring sin into the world, the new Eve, Mary, cooperates in the saving event of redemption. This is Christ plus. The priest is called an altar Christus. If you know Latin, that should shock you a little bit. It's called, it means another Christ. He is a stand-in. He, he is a vicar. He is the one who is offering the grace of the saving work of Jesus Christ to the church. It's Christ plus. If you've ever been to Mass and you see the priest raise his hands over the altar, what he's figuratively doing is he is pulling down Christ from heaven to bring him down over the elements so that the elements can be transformed, transfigured, transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Jesus is re-dying, re-crucified in every Mass. It's an ongoing re-death for salvation. And the priest is mediating this perpetual death of Christ for us. That's what's happening in the Mass. And the church has to go to this altar Christus. They can't go directly to Christ. They have to go through the priest to receive this infusion of saving grace to wash them from the sins. They go to the co-redemptrix. For Rome, the cross is central, but it's just not complete. If you've ever seen a crucifix, Christ is still on the cross because the work is still happening. The death is still occurring. 
For the reformers, their view of the priesthood of all believers, our view of the priesthood of all believers, is that we all have direct access to our one mediator, Jesus Christ. It is not Christ plus. It is Christ alone. And so when we read in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 that Christ is the one mediator between God and men, the reformers said, Amen. Rome said, Amen. But that's the conflict that was happening. And so what does it mean that Christ is our one mediator? Well, we read earlier in the Westminster Confession in the larger catechism during our responsive reading um, how, the, how basically our Reformed tradition has understood the mediating work of Christ. Um, it is, the, Christ fulfills his office of mediator by fulfilling three other offices. And we're going to work some of those out. This threefold structure is called the munis triplex. It's a very fancy way of saying three offices, three municipalities. Uh, we're not going to really develop all of these, but uh, if you want a good place to start, I recommend reading through the book of Hebrews. We're going to pull a bunch of passages from Hebrews, but if you want to see Christ as, uh, as the fulfillment of these three offices, read the book of Hebrews today. Go home and read it from start to finish. The three offices, uh, in, in your notes I gave you a little chart to, to fill in if you'd like to keep track. The three offices are those three offices that we find throughout the Old Testament. They are prophet, priest, and king. We see throughout the Old Testament that these, these offices are shadows. They are types of the true prophet, the true priest, the real king who is to come. That is, that Christ is the one who fully and finally speaks on behalf of God to his people. That Christ is the one that intercedes perfectly for his people and provides them a complete once and for all atonement. And that Christ is the one who rules in perfect justice and equity over his people. The tragedy of the Old Testament of these offices is not that they existed. Right, sometimes we, as modern Americans, we, we kick back against authority and authors and we think, well, well, Christ is our one authority or God is our one authority, which is true because Christ fulfills these offices. The tragedy of the Old Testament is that they were all occupied by the wrong prophet and the wrong priest, the wrong king. They were all tainted by sin. So what does it look like? What does it mean that Christ is our, is our mediator by being our prophet and our priest and our king? First, Christ is our prophet. We're told this in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, which says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. For the author of Hebrews, Jesus is a better prophet because he is the one who made the world. Because he is the one whose message is being conveyed. Uh, 
If you'll remember when, uh, when I preached last time on Sola Scriptura, I gave you the example of if, if I came to you and I said, I buried a million dollars somewhere in Conejo Valley and under each one of your seats, there's a map. I drew it, I gave it to you, I'm the one that buried it. Think the map is pretty reliable? Yeah. What if right after I said that, someone in the back row stood up and said, wait, 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 wait. Uh, I had a vision, I had a dream. Tyler came to me in a dream and he told me that the, that the, the treasure is somewhere else than what's on your map. Right? The person whose message it is is going to be a much more reliable source than the person who is interpreting it through visions and through dreams. The reason why Christ is a better prophet is because he doesn't need to sit back and interpret through the lens of limited knowledge and through the, the cloud of, of, the, of the tainting of sin. He is God himself revealing to us. It's a direct revelation. He is, he is the better prophet. He is the true prophet because he is the one speaking on behalf of himself. He is the one that's declaring the only promise and hope that's available, that the freedom is found only in him. Second, Christ is our priest. Uh, why is Christ a better priest than us. Why is Christ a better priest and a priesthood than that of Aaron? I mean, Aaron was, the, the, the Levitical priesthood was ordained by God, right? So why is Christ a better priest? Again, I recommend reading Hebrews. I'm going to go through this. It's going to be a crash course uh, in, in, in uh, a few chapters of Hebrews. But it tells us in chapter 7 through 10 exactly why. First, Christ is a better priest because he's in the order of Melchizedek which, by the way, is terrible to try to spell. Uh, and it's a weird argument that he makes. It, it's not one that we would typically make because we don't, we don't hold to typically what's called seminal presence. But uh, in effect, what he says is, look, in the Old Testament, you have, this, you have this priest named Melchizedek, right? And he shows up before Abraham. Abraham bows down to Melchizedek and gives his offering. In that time and place, who bows down to who? The greater or the lesser? The lesser bows down to the greater, right? Who was Abraham's seed? Levi, right? The Levitical priesthood was in Abraham bowing down to Melchizedek. So if Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, the order of Levi is bowing down to the order of Melchizedek, right? That's the argument that's being made. Right? And so he says that Christ has a better priesthood. It's a greater priesthood. It's one that even the ordained priesthood that God gives through Levi bows down to. He, so he is not just a greater priest. He is from a greater priesthood. Uh, in the same way, he says Melchizedek is a, is a type of Christ because Melchizedek shows up in the scriptures without any beginning and without any end. Right? He has no genealogy. He doesn't have parents. He doesn't, he doesn't start somewhere. He is the eternal priest. Right? Obviously, Melchizedek the man was not an eternal priest. Right? But he is, he is a type of Christ who is the eternal priest. Right? The one who was the priest for the elect from before the foundation of the world. Who comes and he does not have any end. 
Now, if you think back to Levitical priests, this is somewhat so commonsensical that it's one of those weird questions to answer. What happens to every Levitical priest? They die. Why do they die? Because they're human, right? So you have a Levitical priest, and he dies. And then he hands that hand off to, to another Levitical priest, and he dies. And over and over and over again, the priesthood dies. So you, you, you have this, this revolving door of priests that goes through. And so what happens in the Old Testament? What happens if you have a really, really good priest? You have a Samuel. What happens to Samuel? He dies. Who comes next? Eli. Not the best. Who comes after Eli? His sons. Terrible. Right? So you have, you, you have no security in the priesthood because the priesthood could die. So even if you have a good one, you're going to end up with a bad one, right? What do you get from an eternal priest? Consistency. If you have an eternal righteous priest, you have a righteous priest. And so we have the righteousness of our priesthood that never ends. Another thing that, by the way, 7 through 10 is just jam-packed with things on this. Another thing that happens is, what does the priest have to do before he offers for somebody else? He has to cleanse himself. He has to offer an offering for himself. Why? Because he's a sinner just like us. Right? He has to atone for himself every single year over and over and over again. Every year before he can offer atonement for the people, he has to offer atonement for himself. And then he dies. And the next priest, over and over and over again. If you have a holy, eternal priest, you have the spotless lamb, you don't have a priest that needs to offer atonement for themselves first. He is the spotless lamb that's without blemish. He is the holy priest that offers the unblemished offering that the holiness of God demands. He offers it perfectly. And so he can make the one-time offering for all because it didn't need to be repeated. There was no taint of sin within it. And so he's the better priest. Finally, for priest, and this is, a, again, a big category, and I'm shoving it all together. He's the priest of a better covenant. The old covenant was, uh, I mean, the old covenant gets a bad rap, right? Well, a lot of times we talk about the new covenant. It's, oh, it's all great and stuff. When we think of the old covenant, we think, oh, it's bad and harsh. And all. The old covenant was good for what it was. Right? David delighted in the law of the Lord. We don't want to give it a bad rap, but the old covenant couldn't bring about what it offered. Right? The old covenant, because of sin and lawlessness and the faithlessness of the priesthood, the covenant couldn't secure what it offered. Because in our sin and in the sin of the priesthood, we couldn't meet what it demanded for what it offered to be brought about. What happens in the new covenant? Jesus accomplishes the demands of the covenant itself. And so the covenant that he is a mediator of secures for uh, those of us who are represented it exactly what it promises. 
So the covenant is not just a promise. The covenant is affected for us. So it's a better covenant that he oversees. And so Christ is the true and perfect priest. He is the mediator that is chosen by God to intercede by his own blood to bring about and to secure the covenant for the people. Finally, we see that Christ is king. One of the major images that we see of Christ is uh, Christ is glorified and honored to a certain position, right? So if I were to ask you, what side of God does, does Christ sit down on? The right-hand side, right? Because we're finite and we, we think in spatial terms and we think of that type of thing, what do we normally picture? If you were to picture Christ sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, if you're in your, in your mind's eye, what are you picturing? How many thrones? Two thrones, right? You're picturing the big glorious throne of God and you're picturing maybe, you know, the priest or the, or the, the princely throne next to him for the son. Part of that can, can mislead us, right? In that culture, sitting to the right hand was the position of honor, right? The scriptures are not trying to tell us that Christ is sitting literally to the right hand of God in a different throne. In the book of Revelation, we're told over and over and over about God's throne. It's actually the throne of God is one of the, the major themes in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1.4, 1 1 we're told about the spirits who were before the throne. In Revelation uh, 4, we're told about the, what the throne looks like and the beings that worship before it. In Revelation 5, we're told that the lamb who was slain is before the throne of God. Again, that can kind of reinforce that, that image of a split between uh, God and the Son. And we're told that they worship uh, him who is on the throne and the lamb. Right? So we get this little disjunctive saying that there's God and then there's this other thing called the lamb. In Revelation 7.10, we read about the angels worshiping and saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Revelation 19.4, we're told about the 24 elders and the four living creatures falling down and worshiping God who sits on the throne. And over and over and over again. We find this throughout the entire book of Revelation. One of the interesting things about Revelation, if you ever want to... Uh, speak to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door, use the book of Revelation. John is not just keen to talk about the throne of God. He is keen to show that Christ is God by talking about the throne. If we look at the reference in Revelation 1-4, the throne of God is described as the throne belonging to him who is and who was and is to come. Who is the person throughout Revelation that's called the Alpha and the Omega? The beginning and the end. First and the last. Christ. Right? Him who is and who was and who is to come is applied to Christ throughout the entire book. We miss this a lot of times because right after he says, uh, and from Jesus Christ. So they think, oh, two different people. But in Revelation twenty two thirteen, Jesus says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus tells us in 321, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Is it two separate thrones? One throne. In Revelation 22.3, he says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. One throne. There's one throne in heaven. There's God's throne, and Christ is sitting on it. Who sits on the throne? Christ. What position of authority sits on a throne? The king. He is our one and only king. Why is Christ a better king than David? Because he sits on the throne of God. As God himself. He doesn't have derivative authority like David had. Who had to bestow the king of Israel their authority? God did. Christ doesn't have derivative authority. He has divine authority. He is God ruling from the throne. And so John can write in Revelation 1, 5 through 6, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, ruled over by a king, by the way, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. That's a doxology to a king. And so when you look at, if you look at the chart, you have prophet, priest, and king as the three offices. The human versions had some problems. They had, the king had derivative authority. The priest needed to atone for themselves and they would die. And the prophets were fallible and fallen. But Christ has divine authority. Christ doesn't need atonement for himself. Christ is holy and infallible because the revelation is about himself. So those are the three offices. Now why is it that Christ has those three offices as mediator? Right, that's the connection that's missed a lot of times. It's not just that Christ is our prophet and our priest and our king. It's that Christ is our prophet and our priest and our king as he mediates the covenant between God and his people. Right, that's the, that's the important step. And it's because Christ is the true prophet. Christ is the one who points us to God, who points us to himself. He's the one that declares infallibly and perfectly the way of life, the way to go. Because Christ is the true priest, he is the priest who lives forever, that doesn't need to have replacement or atonement for himself. He's the one that offers the true sacrifice that atones for us, that doesn't need to be ratified. It doesn't need to be altered. It doesn't need to be amended. It doesn't need an altar Christus. And so his covenant is stronger, it's secure, it's sure. And because Christ is our king, he's the only one who rules over us. He rules over those whom he's purchased. He protects us. He keeps us. And so Christ secures his covenant from beginning to end. It is Jesus from the very start where he points us to himself as the true prophet. He points us to the life found in himself. 
He then, as the priest, comes and he offers the perfect sacrifice to secure that redemption that's found in the atonement. And then as our king, he protects those who are in the covenant until the culmination, until we are glorified in his presence. So he is mediating the entire way between God and his people in executing those three offices. That's how Christ is our one mediator. The only mediator because Christ is the one and the only. It doesn't need Christ plus. He doesn't need you, believe it or not, to do that. Christ is our mediator because it is him that works alone. We don't go to popes and priests and bishops. We don't go to Mary. We don't go to the sacraments for salvation. We don't go to those whose fallible hands couldn't secure their own salvation. So why would we go to them for ours? Paul tells us that we don't go to Mount Zion. We go to the blood of Calvary. Sorry, not Paul, the author of Hebrews. Hebrews tells us in 12, 18 to 24, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. For those of you who know the story of, of Cain and Abel, what did Abel's blood cry out for? Vengeance justice. It's the, the blood of uh, the dead calling out for justice and retribution against the hand that slayed it. But Hebrews tells us we come to a blood that speaks better than that. Does it mean that Christ's blood doesn't, doesn't fulfill justice? It speaks better because Christ's blood cries out, it's finished. It's complete for you. The wrath has already been taken care of and so you're already free in Christ. It doesn't demand justice against you because justice has already been done to him. That's the ministry of the cross. That's the mediation of Christ. The one and only on our behalf. It's finished. And we have nothing to add to it. That's the hard part for us. 
That's the, that's, especially as Americans, where we, where we think, you know, I don't want someone to do it for me. I don't want to accept help from somebody else. We sometimes think neurotically that we're, we're trying to hold on to our salvation, that, that, that we're, we're in fear of some type of, of losing it or some type of judgment because we didn't have family devotionals this week or we haven't read our Bible in a year or you don't tithe, or, 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 or whatever it is, most of us probably aren't tempted to go and pray the rosary, right? That's not, that's not our particular version of Christ plus. But if you read through the studies, if you read through, through you know, uh, uh, Bill told us about some of it last time, if you read through some of the Barna studies and the surveys of American evangelicalism, our Christ plus tends to be, well, God wants us to be good. Why, why, if you ask the average evangelical, why are you going to heaven? They won't say because Christ is my one true mediator. They'll say it's because, you know, I, I think I'm a good person. They might not go to a priest or to Mary, but they go to their own works. They have created themselves as an altar Christus. That's Christ plus. That's Christ plus civility. That's Christ plus general equity. That's, that's Christ plus good works, folks. That's what that is. That's not Christ alone. That's not solus Christus. If we listen to the blood of Calvary that speaks better to us than the blood of Abel, better than the blood of bulls, it speaks to us, it's finished. It's accomplished by your one mediator. That's the meaning of solus Christus, that you have life and you have it in abundance, not by any works or any merit or anything that you can add to it. You didn't contribute anything because you have nothing that is worthy to contribute. You have nothing to bring your king. And so the only thing that we do is we turn in repentance and in faith to the grace showed to us in Jesus Christ, our one mediator. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that even though we are fallen and imperfect, that everything we do is tainted by sin. We thank you that even though we have nothing to bring, we have nothing to contribute, we have nothing on our own that can merit or is worthy of any single ounce or modicum of saving grace, that you have given it all, that you have provided for us our one mediator, and that that glorious truth is found in the fact that it is in the humiliation of Jesus Christ, our King, our Prophet, our priest, the one who had every right to lord it over us, but didn't. Who came down from heaven, came down from all glory and all splendor incarnate as one of us to die on our behalf, to offer a better sacrifice. We thank you for the truth of your gospel, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
We pray that today as we go out from this place that we will not try to add anything to the work of Christ, that it is not Christ plus, but Christ alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.